Welcome to another episode of The Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is joined by legendary video game pioneer Hank Rogers. Best known for bringing Tetris to the world, Hank shares his inspiring journey from gaming icon to renewable energy crusader. Join us as Hank shares how he's pursuing this goal through bold ventures like Blue Planet Energy and advocating for sustainability initiatives across the globe. It all starts now on The Solar Podcast. I'd like to welcome everyone back to The Solar Podcast. I'm Dave Anderson, the host. Thrilled to be speaking today with Hank Rogers. Hank is a um, a longtime uh, uh, enthusiast in terms of all things clean, renewable energy, but has a fa- fascinating backstory. We're definitely going to want to spend some time not just talking about things relating to the solar podcast, but but Hank really is one of the more interesting characters or interesting individuals that I've uh, had on the podcast since we've started recording this. Characters may be an appropriate term, and that might make more sense as we get into some of these things. But uh, um, Hank, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much. We'd love to, have, if you wouldn't mind giving our listeners a little bit of an overview um, about about yourself as well, I'd really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, background is I majored in computer science and I minored in Dungeons and Dragons at uh, <laughs> University of Hawaii. Uh, six years later, I wrote the first role playing game in Japan, which uh, got me a publishing company. I uh, ended up uh, publishing lots of games, travel around the world looking for games. Uh, Tetris was one of the games that I brought back to Japan at the time. This is in Japan. Uh, and it uh, kind of culminated, well, I wouldn't say culminated, the high point of my career is I went to the Soviet Union in 1989 to get the Game Boy rights to Tetris, which nobody had, and uh, licensed them to Nintendo. And uh, I basically had a, a, a career in the game business. And how I exited the game business is uh, I had a mobile phone game company, which I sold for a bunch of money. And Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And a month after I sold the company, I found myself in the back of an ambulance on the way to a hospital with a 100% blockage of the Widowmaker. And uh, that's a heart attack. So uh, in that ambulance, I said, no, I'm not going. I still have stuff to do. And in the recovery room, I started working on figuring out my missions in life. And mission number one came to me in the back of the newspaper. It said, oh, by the way, we're going to kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century. And I said, no, we're not. And what's causing that is carbon dioxide. What's causing that? We are. So mission number one is to end the use of carbon-based fuel. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's so many things we need to dive into in that intro. <laughs> uh, obviously, you've got you've had a couple of different careers, fascinating careers nonetheless. And so, I mean, I, I would say that our podcast focuses certainly on solar and renewables and energy and investment, impact investing, these sorts of things. But uh, there's there's certainly... Um, and and it's it's it, it cuts pretty close to me and to my heart is the entrepreneurial side that you've always had and how you're sort of approaching solving real world problems from an entrepreneurial background, a successful entrepreneur's background as well. So I do have to get a little bit more oversight um, into. Uh, for, well, first of all, Dungeons and Dragons has made a little bit of a resurgence. You still a player? <laughs> no, it's just too slow and it takes too much time. Yeah, yeah. So I remember I, as a child of the 80s growing up and having mostly it was my uncles and cousins that were pulling out the books and playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'm a little too young to have gotten into it in the 80s, um, but I'm also a little bit too old to be too much of a gamer. I mean, certainly the Nintendo was coming out, but help us understand what was the story? How did how did you, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think you're underplaying your involvement and your role in Tetris, which is a game that's impacted all generations. So uh, maybe we, uh, if you wouldn't mind going a little bit more into that, I think it's a fascinating story. 
Yeah, so I, I found Tetris at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in 1988. Uh, I immediately picked it up for, you know, to publish it in the, in the Japanese market. Um, we published it on eight different personal computers and on Nintendo, a family computer in Japan. Um, and that's the year that Game Boy came out. So, you know, I, you, you can look at Game Boy and say Tetris made Game Boy and Game Boy made Tetris. And so uh, I, I thought it's the perfect game. So I went out after the rights. There's a whole movie made on this, by the way, on my, my finding Tetris and, and going to the Soviet Union to get the, the Game Boy rights. It's called Tetris, and it's on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, played by, uh, I'm played by a very, very good actor, a uh, young man named, by the name of Taron Edgerton, who, uh, who also played... Um, Elton John in Rocketman, and he also played uh, the Kingsman. So if anybody wants to know the rest of the story or the, the Hollywood side of the story, they can watch the movie. So I've, I've known a few people, and I don't know why, but uh, it's not that I'm traveling in these circles. I've known a, a couple of people that have had very mainstream movies made about them. Um, and some of them are really pleased with both the, the Hollywood depiction of themselves and the story and others less so. So how accurate is the movie to the, uh, to the reality? Um, they got the feeling right. They, they, they took a year and a half of my life and squeezed it into two hours. Uh, so there's a lot of liberty taken to get the excitement, uh, going in the movie. Um, I love the movie. It's, it's a movie movie. Um, (laughs) it just had a, um, uh, something in, in, in England where they gave it the best movie and the best actor. Oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, I mean, this is like a claim. It's nothing to do with games. It's a movie. So, um, yeah, I'm very pleased with the movie. It's not, it's not a historical, historically accurate. That wouldn't make a good, exciting movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things that was interesting as well. So uh, about other renditions of movies that I've seen of, of, a, of a handful of people. One uh, specific of not- notoriety, certainly off topic for the podcast, was Foxcatcher and the story of Mark and Dave Schultz and the tragic ending with, uh, with, uh, the, the, with uh, Dave Schultz passing. So I'm a wrestler and a fighter is my background. And so I'm, I'm pretty intimately involved and familiar with that world. And so uh, Mark Schultz, who originally sold the rights to that story to to the to the movie producer um was initially very excited about it and when the movie came out he was very displeased ultimately in his portrayal and which was unfortunate but uh but long story short um i'm glad to hear that this is a um a movie movie exciting and and uh, that you're pleased with its outcome so now we went from something fairly exciting in the tetris into some pretty tragic circumstances uh having a, a full heart attack and and being put into an ambulance and I'm curious, what was the evolution or how long of a period was it after or during your recovery where you started decided, you know, I need to be more mission driven in my life and there's other things that I want to focus on? Was this a was this in, in, uh, in a moment or in an instance or did it happen over time? Uh, it was pretty much immediate. I, and, you know, in the recovery, I have two stents, by the way, miracles of modern science. Uh, doctors said, don't change anything, don't change your diet, don't change your uh, exercise, you're fine. Okay, great. But uh, I did say in that ambulance that I, um, that I wasn't going, that I still have stuff to do. And then I worked it backwards from the end of my life in, in that recovery room. I said, you know, what did I mean by that? What is it that's going to piss me off if I didn't do something about it by the end of my life? And uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm, I, I guess one way of looking at it is I'm fortunate to have had that experience and enabled me to actually refocus my life and figure out what my path was going to be from then. Um, I'm pretty much on my missions in life now. Well, I think in tragic circumstances, we all get fairly uh, introspective, and it sounds like, uh, at least in part, you were as well, but you certainly took some of those great thoughts and put them into action. So I'd love if you wouldn't mind just going into explaining what is Blue Planet Foundation and what's its origin story? Obviously, I understand its origin story in terms of concept, but what, where did it ultimately come into action? Yeah, so, so first of all, you know, I was living in Hawaii at the time, and um, you know, my mission is to end the use of carbon-based fuel. So I, I, I thought this. I said, well, I'm, let me start with Hawaii. Hawaii is my home, and uh, I kind of feel like before I ask other people to clean their room, I have to clean my room, my room being Hawaii. Now, Hawaii at the time spent five billion dollars a year on oil and six, and uh, sorry, and one billion on coal. Thirty percent of the oil goes to jet fuel. Thirty percent to ground transportation. Forty percent or two billion dollars of oil was being burned for electricity, and uh, all of the coal burned for electricity. Three billion dollars. So that's who we were up against. And of course, the incumbents didn't go quietly into the long dark night, so to speak. We tried everything. I mean, we literally everything. Uh, it was the shotgun approach. Uh, we had school children go door to door, elementary school children go door to door and exchange 300,000 light bulbs explaining mm. to, the, to the, you know, the homeowner why this light bulb would save the money and how it would save their future, their, you know, climate change. Um, we had um, junior high school children draw on sidewalks where high tide would be in a one meter rise in sea level, which is the minimum predicted by the IPCC. Waikiki underwater. And so we, they draw on the sidewalks and we had cameras on them. So everybody in Hawaii knew where high tide would be in a one meter rise. So we got that awareness going. And our big success was finally we got the, the, the people behind us. And then when the people get behind you, then the politicians have no choice. And so finally, in, in 2015, Hawaii was the first state in the country to pass a mandate of 100% renewable energy for electricity by 2045, or any date. Um, 20 other states have copied our legislation now, so we're well on the way there. Hawaii itself, part of that original idea was to, have, uh, to achieve 40% renewable energy by 2030. We have already reached uh, 40%. And how do we do that? We change the business model of the utility so they make more money by switching to renewables. Their old business model is they make 10% on top of the price of oil. Their new model is they get to make more per, per kilowatt hour. So guess who's our best friend now? And last year was the, the last coal fire power plant went down and we passed a law saying never again, coal fire power plant, that's it. And uh, we are definitely on the way, on the path to achieving 100%, way ahead of our deadline of 2045. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, so obviously understand um, the, the solar origin story of Hawaii. Hawaii was the first uh, on the solar space for in a few different areas as well. Uh, there was this thing that they would call the duck curve, which is essentially the point at which electricity from solar, that the generation from the electricity from solar would uh, be higher than the demand. And with the adoption rate of solar being so high, in, in part because the cost of electricity was so high in Hawaii, adoption was fast in Hawaii, 
what actually happened is is we pa- we passed one of the legislation that we passed was a solar rebate. Yeah. So there was a federal rebate, a solar, uh, a state rebate, and the solar industry took off. Originally, we had estimated that there would be about 30 megawatts of rooftop solar in you know, a couple of years. Well, we ended up having 300. And when 300 happened, then the electric company said, whoa, we can't handle that much intermittent electricity on the grid. And so, oh my gosh, then I thought uh, they stopped giving out in, uh, connect, interconnect uh how can I say interconnection? Uh, yeah, yeah. They stopped allowing people to grid grid tie, mm-hmm. and so I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is the end of solar in Hawaii. Um, so then I I figured, you know, the the answer to that is storage, and so to figure it out, I took my ranch off grid and my house in Honolulu off grid, and uh, we searched for battery technology that um, I didn't hate. <laughs> so, so uh, we finally found a, a nice one that, that uh, lasts a long time, and that's environmentally benign. So uh, that ended up being a company. So now, we ha- now I have a company called Blue Planet Energy, and we do energy storage using lithium ferrous phosphate, or LFP. Yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, but Hawaii, a lot of people don't, I think, really appreciate or know or understand that it became an incubator site for a lot of what we're doing across the country in the United States for solar. Um, it was the first place to, again, um, really saturate the grid with energy, with electricity. And so uh, HECO, the electricity company there, had to sort of like figure out how to navigate that. Sounds like you were critical or, or uh, instrumental in, in a lot of that. They were the first to realize, hey, we're going to need to figure out how to store energy at the local level and really sort of create the first real microgrids. I mean, it's really part of a larger grid, but it's really microgrids when you're talking about batteries and and load control and energy management at the at the house level, not just at huge power generation level. And so Hawaii really was an incubator. And California is um, a handful of years behind, both in terms of legislature as well as in terms of adoption, as well as in terms of adoption of the, the battery, the storage pieces of it. Um, but what we're seeing in California with the new legislation on, on the changes to interconnection in California is just a handful of years behind what Hawaii already did. And I think it's a precursor to what we should expect to see across the country as well. Yeah, hopefully across the country and across the world. Of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is huge energy hogs, and there's a lot we could learn from other countries as well. We shouldn't always here in the United States assume or think that that we're the leaders in, 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 in the space. Uh, you know, Hawaii still continues, not Hawaii, excuse me, Australia continues to deploy solar at the residential le- uh, level for well below what the cost is. So the retail price that a consumer would pay in Australia for solar is well below what the cost of a solar company uh, here in the United States can deploy solar at. And so, um, you know, they're, they're around a little over a dollar a watt is their all-in retail costs for solar there. And, and they're at 30% adoption, whereas here in the United States, we have much more modest, like 3% adoption. You know, and yep. so it's something that we're excited about. Well, let's talk about that. So obviously you went from having a foundation and now you have a company, which is great because at the end of the day, uh, the foundation, it sounds like made a huge impact, but now you're using market conditions and your entrepreneurial background to con- continue to drive adoption through this company. So tell us a little bit about Blue Planet Energy. Uh, right. So uh, again, if we go back in time, the, the first the first thing we tried was vanadium redox flow batteries and uh, they were terrible. And after a year, they, the uh, the company that, you know, Prudent Energy turned out to be imprudent because they were bought by the Chinese 
the battery stopped working and and we still have the chemist the chemicals at the ranch you know so there's no plate no way to get rid of them so i said the next battery is going to come from a company that is still going to be around 20 years from now and it's going to be a chemistry that i don't mind having at my ranch at the end of life and so we searched for and we found sony sony is the company at the time well if you go back in time they were the first company to make lithium ion batteries in 1991 and then again they were first the first company to make uh, LFP batteries in uh, in 2009. So when we came uh, around and we started um, uh, making, looking for a battery, um, they were there. They were there at exactly that time. So we're the first company to actually uh, do LFP in the U.S. for storage. Now, now everybody's doing it. Thank God. Um, um, so originally we were, you know, I was thinking that we're we're going to be focused on the Hawaii market, and it's still a big market for us. Um, but now we're, well, all, we have over 500 dealers all across the country. Um, our biggest single project was actually retrofitting all the schools in Puerto Rico um, that all failed as emergency shelter after Hurricane, I forget what the name of the hurricane was, but whatever it, is, whatever it was, they, they all failed because they all, electricity went down. And there's no such thing as an emergency shelter without electricity. So now all the uh, schools have panels and our batteries and our batteries were chosen by the red cross because um they're safe even if there is a fire and they get stuck in a fire they're not going to release any toxic fumes and of course you can't have a, a toxic fume battery in in a school if you're the red cross so yeah or so, a period you shouldn't have a toxic fumes exactly school, so. well yeah, well yeah. you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, mm-hmm. right and and the fact that uh, that the lfp batteries don't add to a fire you know, uh, that, you know, it, with the NMC, the nickel cobalt manganese batteries, you know, if they if they catch on fire, it's over. You basically stand back and wait till the fire is done because it's, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, in the case of LFP, there's nothing in there to catch fire. There's a little bit of liquid and there's a little escape valve. In case it gets too hot, it just escapes. And if it catches on fire, you can just put it out with water. It's no It's no big deal. Yeah, that's one of the problems with batteries, of course, is and 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 you're you're making reference to it, but usually when a battery catches fire, it's a chemical reaction, and and when a chemical reaction stops, it's it's difficult to you have to kind of let the reaction run its course, which is why these fires are really difficult to put out or can be. Uh, but this is obviously, um, you know, there's some nervousness around this. You'll see fodder on social media for people that are um, really opponents of renewable energy or the proliferation of a lot of the renewable energy and. And it's probably it's probably uh, propaganda that's coming from maybe coal-fired power plant owners. But uh, but the point is is that um, th- these batteries really are quite safe. I mean, they they they're they're rated to be in your house for a really really long time. And and uh, and this is one of the myths that we certainly on the podcast try to address and take head on that that these batteries and are a critical part of our of our future grid and um, that they're very safe. Yeah, and and lithium ferrous phosphate, ours in in, in particular, uh, we have a, a fifteen year warranty. They they last at least twenty twenty years in terms of cycle, uh, t- between twenty and thirty years. So, in the time that another battery gets to have to be recycled once or twice, our batteries are still there. So the best way the best way to uh, to reduce recycling is to have a battery that lasts really really long. Uh, so. That's that's one of our, uh, how can I say, our sales points. So Blue Planet Energy, who's, uh, I mean, so you have dealers across uh, the United States and, and into Puerto Rico. 
Um, but uh, who, who's a, a, a typical customer of Blue Planet Energy and a typical customer of a dealer of Blue Planet Energy? Right. A typical customer is probably a high-end homeowner because right now our batteries, because uh, our cells are made in Japan and our, 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 you know, basically it's Japanese technology, it's more expensive than the Chinese uh, technology that does similar things. So we, we last twice as long, uh, but we're, I don't know, 20, 30% more expensive than the Chinese competition. So our basically, you know, our high-end homeowners are, is our typical customer. Um, we're moving into areas where uh, batteries are mission critical. Um, and so um, we're, we're working our way into, um, how can I say, government uh, type of things like the, like airports. That's our, that's our next direction because they'll pay, pay more for a battery that actually lasts longer and is even safer. So that, then, uh, you know, they, they look at those things. They're not just looking for the cheapest battery. You know, we are the solar podcast, but we've spent significant time in previous episodes talking about batteries, technology, and where it's going. I'd love to get your perspective as, a, as an owner of a battery company. What is, um, where, where do you think the big innovations are going to come to continue to drive the proliferation and the adoption of batteries as part of solar installations and solar, frankly? Yeah, there's so many new technologies coming down the pike. I mean, uh, people constantly coming to me with some new, some new technology. And uh, my problem is that, that I, you know, I can't really make a business out of it until I can buy them. You know, when you get into going to production, that's when I can buy them. That's when I can sell them. So it's wonderful that all these technologies are coming out of the lab. But I'm not in a position. I'm not, I'm not rich enough to... <laughs> To actually take that technology and and uh, how can I say go through the bleeding edge years, um, yeah. So that so I'm I'm very bullish. LFP is fine. It's 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 the first battery that's actually environmentally benign. In other words, the instructions for end of life is landfill with, because there's no toxic chemicals in the battery at all, and lithium and iron and phosphate are fairly common. Uh, minerals, I, I, I would say. Uh, but I think there's probably batteries coming out that don't involve lithium either. And maybe there are batteries that are coming out that don't involve mining at all. Because a lot of people are, are you know, upset about mining, especially mining that happens in places where, you know, how can I say, where there are a lot of poor people that are being... Um, Exploitive, yeah. Exploited, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's the, it, it certainly... Um, you know, we're trying to do everything we can, and we talk a lot about that in this podcast as well, about um, making sure that we're being environmentally conscious. But there is a social component to this as well. And, and uh, you know, I think there's, for the most part, or oftentimes we live in a level of ignorance. One of the things that uh, certainly wreaked havoc on the solar industry about a year ago was um, it became difficult to get solar panels into the United States because they were getting hung up at the, at the ports and the harbors because uh, much, most of the glass on solar panels was coming from a specific area of China that had been connected with uh, forced labor and specifically forced child labor. And, you know, this is, a, this is a social issue that obviously impacts us all, and none of us wanted to be part of that. And so it was a pain point for the industry for a period of time where we couldn't get solar modules. Uh, but I think, generally speaking, it's a, it's a net gain uh, that we had to go through that blip of pain uh, in order to be able to be socially, uh, you know, in a better place as a, as a, 
um, as an industry. And I think uh, the mining practices is is come under scrutiny, um, particularly as it relates to batteries. And and I think that's fair. I think it should. And, and I think we should shine a light on it. And uh, light has a way of sanitizing things. Right. Yeah. So we, we have to clean up our supply chain. We have to make our supply chain um, transparent at the end of the day. And that's part of what I'm doing at the Blue Planet Alliance. I'm working on a rating system where we rate companies and products uh, by looking past the company's greenwashing. And all companies have supply chains, and a lot of them end up in, in China or in other places where there are unfair labor practices and, and terrible environmental practices. So, yeah, the world needs to, how can I, first of all, bring everybody up to our standard of living so that they can enjoy our way of living, which, is their, which they're basically uh, entitled to. Everybody in the world is entitled to, to live like, like us. And uh, so what that probably means is that some people at the top need, need to take a little less money off the table and uh, leave, leave some of that money you know, to clean up the supply chain. Uh, I think young people will demand it. Yeah, one of the things I love about our industry is is that we're democratizing power, right? I mean, we're making power accessible to the world. And, um, you know, there's still some 800 million people uh, in the world that don't have access to clean, renewable power. And, and it, it's not difficult to try to imagine what, what one's life would be without access to energy specifically, but electricity more specifically. And, and um, I think that anything that we can do to further the cause of democratizing power and giving clean, renewable access and renewable power it's not just about saving the environment. People want to um, talk about how electricity is, is bad. Electricity isn't bad. It's the source or how we, how we create electricity or how we create energy that's so bad. And uh, the truth of the matter is, is that energy and electricity improves people's lives. And we want to democratize that and give, it, give more people access to power, <laughs> clean, renewable energy power. So, so we did talk about, obviously, your foundation, Blue Planet Foundation. We talked about your, uh, your business, your commercial ventures with, with, uh, with Blue Planet Energy. We should talk a little bit more about Blue Planet Alliance. So it's another Blue Planet, and 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 uh, where did that where did that start? How did you get involved? How did you? What was the idea behind that? And what are its causes right now? Right. So so the the first thing is that you know because we started in Hawaii and it's moving across the state, um, that's great, but we only make six, make up six percent of the people in the world, something like that. What about the rest of the planet? If we don't solve this for the rest of the planet. Everything that we do inside the United States isn't going to be enough, you know. Even though we we have an outsized appetite for 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 like you know energy, um, the rest of the world is going to catch up. They they have again they have they're entitled to be able to have the same style of living that we do, and when they do, um, we we have to make sure that it doesn't they they don't they don't do it in the way that we did it in the past. So anyway. The first thing that I, I decided to do is, is do what we did in Hawaii, uh, but for island countries. And once we get it going in island countries, then we go, move on to countries. So I want to have the same domino effect that we had in the U.S., starting with states, uh, with countries. So last year, we focused on uh, Tonga, Tuvalu, Palau, uh, Guam, which is not a country, but it's it's still out there. It's an island. It's an <laughs> island. And... and uh, so we're flipping islands. And basically, all we need to do is give them the confidence that they can do it. So they make a decision that they're going to go 100% by, I hope, 2045 or sooner. 
And that, that decision is what changed Hawaii. Basically, uh, all, everybody in Hawaii went from it's impossible to, of course, we're doing this. And that is the, the transition that we need to see for the whole world. So that transition in, in thinking, you know, once you pass a mandate, then everybody on your, in your territory, your jurisdiction is on notice that they have to do this. It was the first time that the, that the utility in Hawaii actually thought about it when we passed the mandate. And it's like, oh, my God, we actually have to do this. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you start thinking about how you're going to do it, um, then there is all kinds of different ways. You know, wind and solar is already cheaper. In, in, in Hawaii, the cost of, of oil-based electricity is 25 cents per kilowatt hour. Wind and solar come in at 8 cents. If you add storage, it's 12 cents. It's half the cost. So the, the old business model is 10% on the price of oil. The new business model is, okay, will you make 3 cents instead of 2.5 cents? Guess who's on our side now? All their shareholders. Yeah. And yeah, and all of the executives and everybody in the company. So as as soon as as people in other places realize that they can make more money by switching to renewables, then you'll see a huge change and it, it'll be very fast. And the, the other thing is that we in the, in the whole world spend seven trillion dollars subsidizing fossil fuel. How dumb is that? Is that the behavior that we're trying to promote for the future? No, it's not. We should be at least subsidizing renewable energy to the same tune. Or we, better yet, we should take some of that subsidies away and use the subsidies to promote the renewable energy. So renewable energy should be subsidized more than fossil fuel. It just, we're, we're, we're insane. And I, it's like we're in a, you know, I, I always say we're in a lifeboat. The lifeboat has holes in it. And we're all like, at, you know, trying to bail water out of this lifeboat. And there are people in the world whose job it is to drill more holes in the lifeboat. It makes no sense. You know, mm-hmm. we, we need to get to the other side of this. And we need to get to the other side of this fast. Not only is it, is it going to fix climate change, but it's going to make a bunch of people a bunch of money. So all of you out there who are thinking, oh, I'm trying to, you know, you know, continue to make money. If you're in the energy business, the energy business of the future is renewable energy business. It's not the fossil fuel energy business. So the quicker you make the transition, the more money you're going to make. So think about that. Yeah, I think all too often we try to think about things in the context of there's got to be a winner and a loser and that the people that are, you know, I actually grew up in a coal mining town in Montana and and uh, and then I have spent the majority of my career working in solar and solar proliferation and renewable energy. And so, you know, I've got both of those sides of the coin in my background. And, and I think people all too often want to think about things in the context of winners and losers. The truth of the matter is, is that, um, you know, we tend to use more, we're not tend to, we certainly use more energy, not less energy today than we ever have. And so there's a need to continue to develop and further, uh, and advance the, the, the proliferation of electricity, not just solar. So, but the point is, is that let's make that renewable and as, as part of our conversion as well. And I think that one of the ways that a lot of the, the, the sort of underdeveloped parts of the world have an advantage on us is one of the, is We've actually been hindered in the United States, at least in part, because of our desire to hang on to the antiquated way that we currently are distributing electricity through our macro grid system. And 
And, you know, if, if we were to rethink, if we were to completely redo our entire grid in the way that we produce and, and use electricity right now, there's no way in the world we would do it the way that we're currently doing. It would be much more like the world that we're trying to get to with microgrids, generating electricity at the location where you're using it, um, not having to try to manage and, and, and figure out uh, transition so or transmission. So the electricity generated in Coal Strip, Montana, the majority of that coal-fired power is sold to Seattle. And, you know, it's it's a thousand miles to get the electricity from uh, the little prairie town where I grew up to Seattle to produce electricity for the utility company there. It just doesn't make sense. And so no, that's that one of the things that's exciting. You're talking about winners and losers. So the the <laughs> the winners in this story are old people and the losers in this story are children. How unfair is that? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's totally unfair. Um, you know, I would say to you old people. Don't you care about your children? How about your grandchildren? Do you even care about them? I mean, I've, I've heard this too many times where somebody says, well, it's going to get bad, I know, but by the time it gets really bad, I'm going to be dead. Mm -hmm. What the hell? You know, you have children, you have grandchildren. Take some responsibility. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, uh, help me understand a little bit. So obviously at the time of the recording, you're actually uh, talking to me from from uh, New York City, and uh, it's it's because of some of the advocacy work and some of the work that you're doing specifically there in New York as it relates to the UN. So help us understand or talk uh, to our listeners a little bit about the work that you're doing there. Right. So the reason I'm in New York is, uh, well, Hawaii is about as far away from every place as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. um, and New York is about as close as you can get because every country has representatives here. And uh, it's the United Nations, and everybody has ambassadors to the United Nations here in New York. So I am working both with the ambassadors to try to get their island countries or their countries to uh, have mandates, but I'm also, uh, my target's the United Nations. Um, the, we are right in the middle of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and it's, it's a great idea, um, but if, even if we stop doing everything, it's, we can't be sustainable because we have made such a mess that before we can become sustainable, we have to actually fix things. And so I'd like the next 15, the first 15 years was from 2015 to 2030. And when we have another 15 years after that, from 2030 to 2045, I want them to be the regenerative development goals. It's where we put back everything we've taken from nature and fix everything that we've broken. Then we can be sustainable. And then, you know, we, we can live within our means. We have to put back the forest. We have to grow back the coral. Are you kidding me? The coral is going really fast. I mean, there's not going to be any coral near Florida real soon. And that's just a, an ecological disaster that we've brought on ourselves. It's not just an ecological disaster, but guess what? Hot water begets terrible hurricanes. So, I mean, now that the water's that hot, Oh boy, I shudder to think about it. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, you you made reference to Hurricane Maria and the impact that it had on Puerto Rico. It was a huge disaster for that entire country, and and it was an eye opener, or for that entire island, it was a huge eye opener for them as well. And and since it was like think, I think was it 2017. Since that time, there's been a huge transformation in terms of being able to stabilize their grid by using microgrid technology, using solar panels, using batteries, and 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 for them, it's 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 not really. Yes, it's an environmental thing, but it's also a survival thing for them. I mean, that's the only way that they're going to continue to be able to have access to electricity with the, the pending, impending uh, hurricanes that inevitably are going to continue to hit that island. 
Yeah, so the FEMA rule about putting back what was there before is kind of a ridiculous rule. You know, if 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 we moved uh, electricity on sticks before the hurricane, and after that we put back the sticks, guess what's going to happen next hurricane? Yep. We're yep. going to it's going to be the same problem. So in order to build resilience, we're going to have to get over you know moving electricity on sticks and having centralized electricity. These are all old concepts, mm-hmm. and uh, just like. Uh, Telephony in, in many countries skipped across the landline and g- went straight to the cell phone so that there are no landlines anywhere. I mean, we need to get across. We need to jump that same hoop and get to the point where we don't need landlines anymore. Yeah, again, I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, the United States has been hampered in our ability to adopt better energy solutions in, in part because of our desire to hang on to the old ones that we have. And, and I don't think that's the right way to be thinking about these things. So, yeah. So obviously you've, you've been instrument or you, you've, you've played a throughout your career, the last 10 years, specifically a, a huge role in being an advocate. You obviously have your own business and you're trying to drive using market forces, uh, the adoption of solar and renewable energy. Um, but also uh, you've, you've been uh, really in, uh, involved in the policy making as well. So I'd love to get your take. And so this is a, this, you know, when, when you talk about policy, it's, it's uh, something that'll split a room real quick. So how, how do you sort of think about the importance of policy as it relates to changes relating to climate? And where do you think the government is maybe overstepping at times? Um, I, I was just recently in, uh, in Korea and I was at a, in a city and they, their sustainability team uh, was asking me questions about what should we do? And the, the question came up, what kind of policies should we pass? And I, I, I had no idea. I just went from the, from the airport to the city. I didn't know what, what policies were in place or what their situation was. And I said, you know what you need to do? You need to tell your children the truth about climate change and then ask them what to do. They will tell you because they don't have to worry about their jobs. They don't have to worry about their taxes. They don't have to worry about all these things that, that come into play, which are in the way of us having, of doing what we actually have to do. The solutions are obvious. They're very obvious. I mean, you, if you told a kid that this is the problem, they would tell you the answer. And then, you know, the knee-jerk reaction for most people is, oh, well, we can't do that or... That's never going to happen. I was on a panel in, in Hawaii, and uh, I said, we're going to go 100% renewable by 2045. The guy sitting next to me says, I'm a professor at the University of Hawaii. This is what I study. There is no way we're going to go 100% by 2045. And this is a while ago. This is before, you know, this is around the time when we're passing the, the mandate. And I said, grab the mic, and I said, well, I'm not as smart as this guy, so I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and then... And we are, we totally are. So, so, you know, yes, we need scientists and engineers to tell us the truth about what can and can't be done, but we shouldn't let them decide what we're going to do. We decide. We decide that we go 100% renewable energy, and then we tell them, you guys are going to have to go make this happen. Don't give me no, no nonsense about this. This is your job. Your job is to figure this out. And that's how we're going to save, you could say, save humanity. But I mean, it's, it's this planet, it's the whole ecosystem. You know, what are we doing? It's, it's off the rails. We're off the rails and we have to get back on. 
Yeah. So the IPCC that you've already, that you previously referenced, um, the mandates that it had sort of suggested or alluded to were, you know, something well shy of a hundred percent conversion to renewable power, uh, but critical components. And so, yeah. So, so one thing about the IPCC and their recommendation, the recommendation is that we need to stay below 2.0 degrees of global warming or 1.5. And the problem is this, this is not something that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, I live in New York or Hawaii and the temperature is going to be on average two, two degrees warmer than it was 10 years ago, what does that mean to me? Uh, it, maybe I don't need a t-shirt or whatever, yeah. but, the, the the actual the actual thing that that the 1.5 or the two does is it gives us extreme weather and so the problem is is by by giving people a fuzzy goal they don't know what to do and how exactly what their actions are going to affect that final goal only a few people know but a hundred percent renewable energy everybody understands that we're going to we're not going to have any more coal fired power plants no more fracking, no more oil being drilled. We're going to switch to electric vehicles and all our, uh, all our electricity is going to come from wind, solar, and geothermal. That, I mean, that is just a future that everybody can understand. Young people understand it. So mm-hmm. ask them and they'll tell you, oh, yeah, well, this is what you got to do. Yeah, I think uh, I, uh, maybe the point, I, I mean, I agree with you completely, but maybe the point that I was trying to even get to is, is you've got, so you have the IPCC, which is obviously led by the United Nations, and then you have the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, which here in the United States was the largest piece of legislation that's going to, I think, make the biggest impact in terms of a conversion to renewable energy. But still at the local level, we continue to fight and have a lot of headwinds. So you've got these like really at the highest level, um, some tailwinds pushing us, I think, in the right directions. But then we get these like local bureaucratic uh, headwinds, you know, where it can be fairly difficult, the amount of red tape and the amount of uh, effort that has to go in to do an installation, any given installation is really overly burdensome here in the United States. Have you been, uh, t- tell me what, what are your thoughts on that? And have you done anything to sort of try to, um, assuage the, the, the things that the local dealers are dealing with on a daily basis, just trying to get flow down at the building department to pass a permit? Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I, a solar building on my ranch and that solar building, it took me three years to get a permit. It was ridiculous. And it was supposed to be fast track because it's got solar on it. And so, yes, we've been working with uh, uh, the governor, with the mayor, with uh, legislators and say, you know what? That the thing that's going to prevent, if anything is going to prevent Hawaii from actually making it, it's, it's the permitting process, which is so, uh, well, what, what is the word? It's so hard and so time-consuming um, that it, it's just holding everything down. And uh, yeah, we need to get past this. We need to get implement rules like if we don't get a permit within two weeks, it's automatically granted, that kind of thing, um, wh- whatever, whatever it takes. And then we'll see whether the government then steps up and, and gets faster at it. But, you know, as, t- as and technologies become safer, there's less for them to worry about. Because right now, um, when you do batteries, it's, it's like, oh, my gosh, batteries, they're, they're flammable. And it's like, uh, no, not all batteries are flammable. Okay? I'll tell you what's mm-hmm. flammable. Uh, fossil fuel is fat flammable. <laughs> Oil, gas, you know, um, diesel, those are flammable. And they're very dangerously f- flammable. 
um, the future, you know, here's my future. My future is that we make hydrogen everywhere uh, using renewable energy. And my favorite re renewable energy source is geothermal. Uh, we, have, we have barely scratched the surface on geothermal. It takes up tiny amount of space. Uh, you just drill down, you send down water, you get back steam. How hard is that? I mean, there's no such thing as a, as a leak or as a damage, whatever. And, and it's it, basically, it's baseload. That's the difference between wind, solar, and geothermal. Geothermal is always on. It never goes on and off and on and off and on and off. And so if you're going to amortize your equipment for making, for example, hydrogen or electricity or whatever, you want your stuff to be on all the time. And so Hawaii is, has geothermal up the wazoo and is just not making progress there. And uh, there is a lot of, um, how can I say, strange objections to it that, um, that people don't understand. You know, they don't understand what it is. They think that, um, that it, it may be causing some fumes to come out of the ground, which, no, it's a volcano. Fumes come out of the ground anyway. You know, mm. it has nothing to do with the, with the geothermal plant. And then there are native objections. But, I mean, I think we'll get over that. Um, the future is, is uh, ring of fire. Hello, it's not called a ring of fire for nothing. That's right. Yeah. So um, what what sort of advice do you give to people? I mean, obviously, uh, you have the luxury of being in a position where you'd sold the company. And so you can really follow your passions and, and, and your passion projects can also be your businesses, which I think you've also made successful. But what's your advice for those that are, you know, um, um, looking to also make a similar impact, but uh, maybe don't feel like they have the same opportunities, at least in the short run, to go out and start huge foundations or huge advocacy groups and and, and spend time rubbing shoulders with the, uh, the, you know, the, the, all of the people of the United Nations. Yeah, so uh, do what you can. I'm not asking you to do something that's, that's like outside of your, how can I say, outside of the, your, your particular life box that you live in. There are things you can do inside your life. You know, I, I, for example, I, I change uh, all of my cars now are electric cars. And here in New York, I ride a bicycle. I don't even have a car. So if I, if I can, by the way, I make choices. I do fly. I have to. Uh, and when I do, I choose the, the lowest carbon footprint flight. There, you can actually figure it out. You can actually look at it. So all the little things that, have, that you do in your life, just think about what the impact of that is on the future. Uh, the future of the world, the future of your children the future of nature, because that is your job. We, you, we as human beings, our job is to preserve the world. Or I think right now we're in a, in a generation where we actually have to fix it because it's because we've broken so much of it that we have to uh, recover. Yeah. So what are some, uh, you know, as a person that's spent as much time in the solar or in the renewable space as I have, certainly, um, what are your sort of hot takes? What are your really bold predictions for the future in terms of where our industry can be in just the next handful of years? Right. I, I, I think that we'll be able to install as much solar as the, wind, the world can produce. Um, and so it's all about getting the production to be greater and greater and greater. In Hawaii, we've already have more people working in the solar industry already many years ago, actually. More people work in the solar in industry than work for the uh, utility. So we're creating high-paying jobs, 
And the future is going to be more high-paying jobs because, you know, it's creating panels, uh, turbines, uh, and installing all that stuff. Th those are high-paying jobs. Those are, those are they're hard work, but they're high-paying jobs. And so that is a transition. Everybody's worried about, well, what about our jobs? No, you're going to have more jobs. And this is the whole, this transition is, is, is all about, about business being, making more money and people working on high-paying jobs that are going to make more money. So, yeah, yeah. Well, nobody's asking anybody to make a sacrifice here. Yeah, well, there, there's a second part to that. It's more high-paying jobs, yes, check, but it's also lower-cost power. The other thing that you always hear, the other myth is, is that our power costs are going to dramatically increase. And the truth is, is that in California, you pay 40 cents a kilowatt hour for your electricity. Half of that is for the cost of electricity. Half of that is for the transmission. And if so just by uh, producing it locally, you get rid of the transmission cost. And then, oh, by the way, production at a local level for solar, even with batteries, is far less than 20 cents a kilowatt hour. So uh, oh, yeah. we're, we're at a grid parity place for sure already. So it's more jobs, check. Less expensive, check. It's, it, it, yeah. it, it ticks both important boxes. So when you think about it, like Hawaii spends $3 billion a year on fossil fuel for electricity. That's just money flowing out of the economy for a million and a half people. Go do the calculation. How much is that per person? Yeah. It's the reason that, that, that uh, salaries are low and rents are high and the cost of living is ridiculous. So young people end up having to move to the mainland. That's what we call it. Or a lot of Hawaiian young people end up in Las Vegas. And it's, it's just a crime that people can't stay where they live because the cost of living is too high. I, I heard the term on American Idol, priced out of paradise, right? From uh, our guy, yeah. Tongi. <laughs> there you go. Priced there out of paradise. Go, yeah. No, uh, Hank, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I mean, there's uh, we could do four or five episodes um, just on the fascinating life that you've led and, and the many initiatives that you have and certainly wouldn't even scratch the surface with that many episodes. But but thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything that you have with the solar. So just so, so maybe sort of parting words for our, uh, our, our listeners here, Hank. Yeah. So parting words. Um, first of all, people ask me if I have hope. And my answer is, no, I don't have hope. I have determination. Because we are doing this. We are going to do this transition. Humanity has faced, you know, sort of huge issues in the past. And we've always survived. This is the one thing that we can say that we do know how to do is we know how to survive. And this time, survival depends on us to switching to renewable energy. So let's get it out of the way. The faster we do it, the easier it's going to be. And the less damage we're going to do to ourselves. You bet. I think a little bit of hope can uh, lead to a lot of determination. And, and if you only have one, determination is not a bad place to be. So, but yeah. Hope. Uh, yeah. So nobody's going to come and save us. We are going to have to save ourselves. It's sink or swim. We swim. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Hank, again, fascinating to have you come on the episode. A time just flew uh, speaking with you today. Uh, look forward to following uh, the, you know, the many different initiatives you have, all the all the different Blue Planet Energy Foundation and Alliance that you're working on. I'm sure there's more things that are in your mind that are going to make their way into the main street as well. And and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely try to follow that as well. And and again, just for our listeners, go check out that Tetris movie just for fascination as well. <laughs> Hank, <laughs> Hank, again, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Aloha.